I'd like to begin with a definition this morning of the term occult. I designate anything as belonging to the occult which involves dealings with the world of spirits or of supranormal forces, dealings which are not oriented on Jesus Christ as he is revealed in the Bible. Anything that falls under that designation is what I mean by the occult. And with that definition, I'm assuming the reality of a spirit world and the reality of those supranormal forces. I'm assuming that the church makes a very grave mistake, as it has sometimes in recent days, by saying that those kinds of things only happened in another age or that only godly people can perform miracles. That's a mistake that opens the church up to a terrible, evil force because it refuses to simply see the reality in front of it. The definition is also intentionally very broad so as to include everything from blatant Satan worship on the one hand, which we have a lot of in these Twin Cities, and the simplest use of horoscopes, say, at the other end. As examples of what I mean by occult, I would include seances, necromancy of all sorts, communicating with the dead, PSI, ESP, all forms of supernormal psychic phenomena, real magic, as opposed to sleight-of-hand tricks, fortune-telling, casting of spells, wearing of charms, use of Ouija boards, astrology, etc., etc. That's what I mean by the occult. And what I would like to try to do this morning is show you from the Scriptures, first, that God is opposed to His people being involved in any of these things, and second, why He is, and third, what the positive alternative to these kinds of activities should be in the church. So first, let me lay before you from the Scriptures as, as clearly as I'm able the fact that God bans from his people all involvement with the occult. Let's begin with our text. The text is Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 9 through 12 on this first point. Moses, you remember, is with the people of Israel standing before they go into the promised land, recapping the law that had been given at Sinai. Before they go in to disperse the pagan nations, he says, When you come into the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination, a zoothsayer, or an augur. An augur is someone who is like an enchanter or who looks for omens. A sorcerer, a charmer, a medium, a wizard, or a necromancer. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominable practices, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. Now Moses mentions eight practices of the occult here, and I chose this text in part because there is no other text in the Bible where so many of these are assembled in one place. Divination, 
soothsaying, augury, sorcery, use of charms, mediums, wizardry, and necromancy. Now, these are not clearly distinct categories. They overlap. Sometimes in the Old Testament they're used interchangeably. What they have in common is this. They are all efforts to obtain knowledge by means of dealings with a world of spirits or supernormal forces. And not only are they efforts to obtain knowledge, there's one other thing they have in common, I think, and that is they really are efforts to obtain power over persons or circumstances. This can be seen most clearly, say, in the word charmer in verse 11. A charmer is one who casts a spell. That means a person who uses supranormal forces or spirits to control events outside himself or persons. For example, uh, when Moab, the king of Moab, was watching Israel approach his land and he knew that he was in trouble because he had heard of the reputation. Now what this is illustrating is that not only the word charmer but all of these words here in this list in Deuteronomy 18 probably imply that power is being sought not just knowledge. Here comes Israel. So what does Balak, the king of Moab, do? He sends for Balaam, a known magician prophet. And he tells Balaam not only to find out for him whether Israel is going to defeat him, but he wants him also to wreck their plans, cast a spell on them. And it says in Numbers 22, 7, that he was to divine and pronounce a divination on them. And then finally, Balaam concludes in Numbers 23, 23, there is no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. God's people were impervious to his desire to use divination, not merely to get knowledge, but to stop them. And that's the case, I think, with all forms of the occult. Never mere curiosity, but curiosity that will then give us a sense of power over circumstance or over people. So I think all of these eight forms of the occult illustrate activities in which there are dealings with the world of spirits or supernatural forces which aim to get secret knowledge not otherwise available and power over people and circumstances. Now what does Moses say about these things? That's what we're most interested on the first point here. He says six things about these activities. First, in verse 9, he calls them abominations. This means that God regards them as detestable, abhorrent, loathsome. It is a very strong word. There is not one any stronger that I know of God could have chosen in the Old Testament. And I think the strength of the word should cause us to ask whether or not any seemingly innocent activity of the occult that we might be engaged in is really an abomination in God's sight. We can be that deceived. And we need, when we hear a text like this, to ask that question. Second, from verse 12, the persons who do such things are an abomination to the Lord. Not merely the activity, but also the persons become abominable in God's eyes. 
It's an unbiblical sentiment to say that God only hates sins, He doesn't hate sinners. That's a very common notion that just won't square with many texts in the New Testament. When a person gives himself over to will, to delight in, and to follow after abominable practices, he makes himself abominable in God's eyes, as verse 12 clearly says. Now, of course, when a person is abominable in God's eyes, he is not beyond the reach of God's love. This is so important to realize in our day because people think they have to short-circuit this first truth in order to preserve the second. The glory of divine love is that it reaches out and justifies and sanctifies precisely those who are abominable in God's eyes. That's the mystery of agape. Third, from verse 10, the activities of the occult are ranked alongside infanticide, killing of our children as sacrifices to some god. Now, that's an amazing thing, that these eight practices should be associated with killing children. I think probably the reason that that one is put in there alongside the occult is because we all feel the loathsomeness of killing our own children, burning them alive to satisfy a God. So the effect of putting it beside the acts of the occult is to show what God considers abominable. In other words, consider the use of your horoscopes and your charms and your Ouija boards and your fortune telling and your magic and your PSI just as abominable as slaying your own children and burning them alive. Isn't that the effect it has when we read them together? Fourth, in verse 12, the Lord dispossesses and destroys those who practice these things. That is, they eventually fall under God's judgment. The nations are being driven out, not just so that Israel can have the land. There were moral reasons why the nations were dispossessed from Canaan, and among those reasons were the practices of the occult. And those people who give themselves over to practicing the occult will come under God's judgment. Fifth, in verse 9, it follows, therefore, that a commandment comes forth from the mouth of Moses you shall not learn to follow these abominable practices. Now, that's very strong. He's not just saying, don't do them. That's obviously implied. He's saying, don't learn to do them. Don't equip yourself to do them. Don't prepare in any way to take part in them. Don't experiment with them. Keep a clear distance between you and the acts of the occult. That seems to be clearly implied in verse Nine. So that's the heart of my first point, namely that the Scripture forbids God's people from any participation in the activities of the occult. Then one more observation, sixth from this text, is found in verse 10. No one who practices these activities is to be allowed to stay among God's people. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament make provisions for excluding from the fellowship those who persist willfully in abominable practices. And therefore, Moses stresses for us the seriousness of involvement in the occult by saying 
Those who practice them are not to be found among God's people. So, I think it's clear, just from this text alone in the Old Testament, that it is God's will that his people not be engaged in the activities of the occult. But it might now strengthen our case if we can show that there's a broader base for this besides the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy means second law, deuteronomos, which means that it's the second time the law is being given. It's a repeat and an unfolding of what had already been given in Sinai. So it's not surprising when we go back to Sinai and read Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, that we find commands like these. For example, Leviticus 19.26, You shall not practice augury or soothsaying. 19.31, Do not turn to mediums or wizards. Do not seek them out to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 20, verse 6, If a person turns to mediums or wizards playing the harlot after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. Later on in the history of Israel, as the sins of the people grew and it came time for God to judge the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah, we find numerous places where the sins that are bringing judgment are cataloged. For example, in 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 16, Judah and Israel, it says, forsook all the commandments of the Lord their God. They burned their sons and daughters as offerings and used divination and sorcery. And probably Judah sunk to its lowest point under the reign of Manasseh. And it says in 2 Kings 21.6, he burned his son as an offering and practiced soothsaying and augury and dealt with mediums and wizards. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord. Isn't it interesting that in these other two points in history, the occult is put side by side with the slaying of our own children. Isaiah was one of the prophets God sent to Judah during this time of degeneracy to warn the nation of coming judgment, to call them back to God and to obedience. And we can see Isaiah's attitude towards omens and divination in Isaiah 44:24. Thus says the Lord your Redeemer who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who stretched out the heavens alone, who spread out the earth, who was with me, who frustrates the omens of liars, who makes fools out of diviners, but who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers. God frustrates omens and he makes fools out of diviners, but he confirms the word of his appointed servants. So there's a clear division. It's Jesus versus the occult. In chapter 47, verse 12, Isaiah uses biting irony to strike out at the folly of looking to the occult for help. He says, Stand fast in your enchantments and your sorceries with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps they may be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you, those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, and who at the new moons predict what shall befall you. Woe to those who dabble in astrology and consult their horoscopes and strive to know what the day will bring. 
Isn't that the clear implication of Isaiah 47? The judgment of God will fall upon people who are not content with the revelation of God and seek their destiny in horoscopes. For Isaiah 2.6 says, For thou hast rejected thy people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of diviners from the east and soothsayers from the Philistines. And suppose we turn over now to the New Testament. Is this just an Old Testament hang-up? The rejection from God is just as clear. It's confirmed. For example, in Acts 19, verse 18, Paul comes into Ephesus with an evangelistic crusade. He preaches. He builds a church. And what is one of the first things that happens? It says, Many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. A number of those who practiced magical arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. So the word of the Lord grew and prevailed mightily. When the word of the Lord grabs hold of a mind and a heart, all involvement with the occult goes. It's Jesus versus the occult. And the division is clear even in the apostolic preaching. Besides the illustration in Acts, Galatians 5.20 lists sorcery as one of the works of the flesh. And Revelation 21 verse 8 lists it alongside murder, adultery, fornication as those things which will cause people to fall under God's judgment. Therefore, in summary... Under this first point, it seems clear to me from Scripture that God's people should not be involved in any form of the occult. That is, in dealings with the world of spirits or supranormal forces that are not oriented on Jesus Christ as He is revealed in the Bible. Now, why? That's the second point. Why is God so against this kind of thing? I'll try to sum up in, a, in a, a sentence why I think it is and then develop some illustrations of this from Scripture. I think the fundamental reason why God is opposed to our involvement in the occult is because it belittles God and exalts human pride. Or to put it another way, the occult is simply a continuation of the ancient satanic deception Go beyond what is appointed and you will become like God. Genesis 3, verse 5. All forms of the occult present this one temptation. Will we act like humble, dependent children, trusting in our Heavenly Father and submitting to His wisdom and the limitations that He has placed on our knowledge and our power, or... Will we be like Adam and Eve and hanker for that fruit that will make us wise and for that power which belongs to God alone? Will we belittle God and exalt ourselves or will we humble ourselves by being content with His revelation and with the power that He uses on our behalf? Let's begin now to unfold that from Scripture by looking back at our text in Deuteronomy 18. This is really the reason I chose this text, the link up between verses 9 to 14 and verses 15 to 19. I had never noticed this before studying it this week. 
In verses 15 to 19, God promises to raise up a prophet from among the people like Moses. And if you're familiar with the New Testament, you know that the apostles saw the final fulfillment of this in Jesus Christ, according to Acts 3, verses 22 to 23. Jesus is the final great prophet like Moses, the final revealer that God would send. So the point of Deuteronomy 18 is to show that God has appointed a revealer that we should attend to and not attend to the mediums that these other nations listen to. You can see it if you look first at verse 14. These nations which you are about to dispossess give heed to soothsayers and diviners. God's alternative in verse 15, the Lord your God will appoint for you a prophet. Him you shall heed. See the contrast? Then in verse 19, whoever will not give heed to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So this prophet is coming with God's words, and the people are to heed the prophet, not the medium. So God has appointed for himself a revealer of all that he desires to be known, and when we turn away from that revealer and go after secret knowledge by other spiritual means, we belittle God and we devalue the revelation of Jesus Christ and take to ourselves the prerogatives of deity. No one, I think, who loves Jesus and who orients all of his life around the revelation of Jesus Christ will be involved in the occult. It's Jesus versus the occult and you can't have both. Isaiah says in one place how incongruous it is for a person who claims to rely on God to seek knowledge and wisdom from the occult. He says in chapter 8, verse 19, when they say to you, consult the mediums and the wizards who chirp and mutter, should not a people consult their God? And here the point of that is unthinkable to Isaiah that people who know God and who have the testimony and the teaching in the scriptures should go after other sources of revelation. But someone may say, Ah, but God hasn't said enough. My need goes beyond what God has revealed. Saul ran into that very problem. You remember the story of 1 Samuel 28? God had shut his mouth against Saul and would not answer him. Saul had disobeyed. So what does Saul do? Instead of humbly waiting for the Lord and repenting of his earlier disobedience, he goes to the witch of Endor and he asks her to do what he knows is unlawful. By his own decree it's unlawful. Bring up the dead spirit of Samuel the spirit of dead Samuel. Bring him up. He can tell me what I should do about my enemies. And she does. And Samuel nails him for doing that. And later on, when Saul dies, and the reasons for his being slain are given, it says in 1 Chronicles 10, 13, so Saul died for his unfaithfulness. He was unfaithful to the Lord in that he did not keep the commandment of the Lord and also consulted a medium. 
seeking guidance and did not seek guidance from the Lord and therefore the Lord slew him and turned the kingdom over to David his son. Consulting mediums, tea leaves, fortune cookies, horoscopes, crystal balls, palmists, or any other oracles beyond God's word is wrong because it belittles God and exalts human pride. It belittles God as an inadequate revealer of mysteries. It says, in effect, that God is unable or unwilling to tell me what I need to know or to give me the power I need to live. And therefore, God lacks power, God lacks goodness to help me, and I'll take matters into my own hands and find somebody or something or some force who can help me. And therefore, people who really love God, who trust His power, who depend on His sovereignty, shun all practices of the occult. Earlier in his life, Saul had disobeyed. God had told him, you go up and destroy the Amalekites, wipe out every one of them, take no spoil. And what does Saul do? He's wiser than God, so he takes the best of the spoil. He comes back, and Samuel is still living, and Samuel looks him straight in the eye and says, why did you do this? And Saul says, I just wanted to sacrifice them to God. And Samuel says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams, for rebellion is as the sin of divination. Rebellion is as the sin of divination. That's not an accidental juxtaposition. What Samuel is saying there is when we are involved in any kind of divination, that is, transaction or dealing with the world of spirits in order to obtain some kind of knowledge or power, we are engaged in rebellion against God. Man in the occult is man in rebellion. And whether he realizes it or not, no matter how simple the activity, he is engaged in a seditious effort to throw off the yoke of God's absolute sovereignty and to install himself at a higher level in the governance of the universe. It's rebellion against the king of the universe. The whole field of the occult is Satan's seedbed of pride. Every activity of the occult, no matter how innocuous it may seem, does this. It gives us the opportunity and tempts us to shed our finitude and take on wisdom and power that belongs to God. Eat this fruit and you will become like God. That's the temptation of all forms of the occult. You can see the pride involved in it by an illustration from Acts chapter 8. You remember Simon, the magician? Listen to the way Simon is described in Acts 8 9. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the nation of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all gave heed to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is that power of God which is called great. And they gave heed to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. That's where all the occult is aiming. It's aiming 
at gaining power, which can be called great, and that is rebellion against the Most High God, just like it was in the Garden of Eden. This one thing is the aim, to avoid at all costs childlike submission to the limitations and the provision of our Heavenly Father, and instead to gain for ourselves power that can be called great. Man in the occult is man in rebellion against God. And there's one other way to describe why it's evil. Man in the occult is man in harlotry. Leviticus 20 verse 6 says this, If a person turns to mediums or wizards playing the harlot after them, I will set my face against them. Consulting mediums is committing adultery against God. That's what the meaning of that text is. Jesus Christ is the husband of the church. Jesus Christ is the final and full revelation of all that God has to say and the medium by which we are to attain the power God wants us to have. Therefore, when we go after secret oracles, instead of drawing power from Christ and wisdom from Him, what we are doing in effect is saying, my husband satisfies me no longer. I've got to have other lovers. When a Christian peeks at his horoscope, he's acting and treating God just like a husband treats his wife who peeks at Playboy to get some titillation that she no longer provides. Involvement in the occult is wrong because it is spiritual adultery. It is rebellion against the sovereignty of God and it belittles God's revelation and exalts human pride. So finally, in conclusion... What is our alternative to it? What is the Christian alternative to the occult? And the answer is the same everywhere in the New Testament. This is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Faith is the alternative to the occult. Over against all the allurements of the occult stands one man, Jesus Christ. And he is all-sufficient as revealer of knowledge and supplier of all the power that God wants us to have. And faith takes its stand on the all-sufficiency of that revelation and seeks no secret oracles. And faith takes its stand on the power that God has and seeks no secret means of power. Instead, faith cleaves to Jesus, loves Jesus, trusts Jesus, adores and exalts the all-sufficiency of Jesus and shuns in all her many garments the temptress of the occult. And now may the power and the revelation and the peace of God guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus alone, our great Savior and guide. Amen. You're dismissed.